Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to the end of jobs, upcoming change and how it will impact all of us. Today, we'll discuss the profound change in today's world of work and what each of us needs to think about and do to be prepared for the road ahead. Our guest today is Jeff Wald. Jeff is the founder of multiple technology companies, is an investor, startup advisor, and serves on several boards. He has been studying workforce dynamics in depth for decades. He is a best-selling author of two books, including one that we'll be digging into today, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers, and Agile Corporations. It looks at the history of work and helps us understand how companies and employees reacted to the last three industrial revolutions and pulls through what we might learn from that. Recently, Jeff announced the 10 million Future of Work Prize and the views of leading thinkers on what the world of work will look like in 2040. Welcome, Jeff, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for our conversation. I am as well. I think I'm going to learn a lot, and there's a lot to share on this topic, we also want to get to know you a little bit as a leader and your thoughts on the changing world of careers as it relates to the world of work and some of your views on that as well. Maybe as we jump in, can you set the table for us? This is a big topic. So what can we learn from some of the highlights from the history of work and how that relationship between organizations and employees is changing? Well, I'm going to step even one step backwards from that and just say that the important thing to learn here, and this might be my business school training coming out, is the framework for thinking about the future of work. I did a lot of research, built this company, Work Market, which is an enterprise software platform that helps companies manage freelancers, largest in the world. We sold it to ADP, largest HR company in the world. So I got all this wonderful perspective over the last 10 years building those things. But the most important perspective is a framework for thinking about the future. And that framework is to look at history, to look at data, and to look at how companies actually engage workers. And if you combine those bodies of evidence, I'm not saying that everything I predict is going to be 100% true. I'm just saying I've got a logic and a reason and a defensibility on those predictions. What I would really encourage every listener is start to challenge anything that is put outside of that framework, and even predictions made inside of that framework, parse through their data, ask them to support the argument. People out there make predictions about the future of work that have no basis in history, that have no basis in data, that have no basis in how companies actually engage work. And I'm not saying they never come true. I'm just saying they hardly, hardly ever come true. And they just have such a low probability of coming true. Be mindful. And that's where I always start my thinking and discussion is the framework in which I attack the problem. That's very smart. Within that framework, what can we learn from each of these three elements? History. And 
you highlighted in the intro, which was a lovely intro, by the way, thank you, that we've been through three industrial revolutions before. And as we think about the robots and AI, what a lot of people are calling the fourth industrial revolution, why would we not look at how companies, workers, and societies adjusted to previous step functions and technological change? We've been here before. Now look, this change will have differences from the last three industrial revolutions, the last three being mechanization, electrification, and computerization. We definitively are at a different point in the evolution of the human experience, of our societies, of our economies. And there are differences, but history tends to rhyme. And so we need to study how that power balance shifts between companies and workers, how companies take advantage of it, reaping excess profit, the things that we are seeing now, because we're not about to begin the fourth industrial revolution. We are deep in the early innings. And we see how workers respond. And workers tend to respond by relying on what we call counterbalancing forces of unions, the social safety net, and regulation. And where they can, they vote for increased regulation. They vote for an increased social safety net. We see increased union activity, all of which we're seeing in various guises now understanding how companies, workers, and societies adjusted to the last three becomes super important. Because I'll leave you with this as we kind of move into data, which is the very clear trend in each of these industrial revolutions is workers working fewer hours, there being more jobs, and people achieving a higher standard of living. That is a very clear trend line throughout the history of work and humans' experience through these industrial revolutions. And when you say that, are you speaking globally? We certainly can speak globally. Most of my research and most of the data is from the United States. And the reason for that is, quite frankly, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There is no comparable statistical office anywhere in the world. Other countries have caught up, but nothing that goes back as far as the BLS data goes back. Not only the size of the U.S. economy and its breadth and its scope, but the data that we have available to us. To your point, certainly there are changes in the way companies, countries, societies adjust based on where they are in their development cycles, the United States will have a very different experience with robots and AI than Mongolia, than Chad. But it is an example for all industrialized countries, and it is an example of where all countries get to, hopefully, eventually. So tell us about the data. There are a number of data patterns that are very clear through the history of work. We touched on the overarching thesis. The overarching data patterns are job growth increasing. Again, it's not a perfectly straight line. There are blips here and there. But for the most part, more and more jobs. We see people working fewer and fewer hours. And to your point, by the way, depends on the country. Right now, the average American works 1,780 hours per year. That is down 10% of over the last 20 or 30 years. The average person in France works 1,440 hours. The average person in Germany, about 1,480 hours. The average person in Mexico, 2,200 hours. But all of those countries have seen decreases. It just depends on where they are in their industrial development cycle. And then the higher standard of living, also a very clear trend. The data, though, would tell us a lot of things about on-demand work, about remote work, and a host of other aspects of the labor market. One of my favorite anecdotes in bringing this to life is a panel I was on the other day. One of the panelists said, well, I believe 50% of the U.S. workforce is going to work remote post-pandemic. And I was like, I I'm sorry, I have to interrupt here. 
you think 50%? The guy said, yes, yes, 50%. Very fulsomely, very excited about himself. I said, all right, well, how do you juxtapose that against the fact that only 42% of the U.S. workforce can work remotely? Because clearly people in manufacturing and in logistics and transportation and entertainment and a host of other sectors can't work remotely. And he said to me, he said, I didn't know. I honestly didn't know that 42% was the max. And I said to him, well, shouldn't you know? Shouldn't you know that if you're going to be out making predictions on the future of work? I'm not invited back to that particular company in that particular panel, but it highlights how data is so vitally important when we think about how it is we are making these predictions. Because if you made that prediction and you didn't understand the 42%, that prediction has no chance of coming true, 0% chance of coming true. And yet you have people out there making those predictions. And that's why I so focus on the data. So what might you say are some predictions that are data-based? It highlights for me a series of questions that I'm always asked these days, which is how has the pandemic changed the world of work? And my response is we don't know yet. All of this happened so quickly. The changes were so great. And then snapback was so great. We don't know what is going to occur. However, we can look at remote work. And let's double click there and use data to make some predictions. Let's start out with history, though. 10 years ago, 1.5% of the US workforce worked remotely. Now, definitions are super important here. Remote work means more than 50% of the time you are not going to an office. That has important implications from a tax nexus standpoint. Am I going to pay New York City commuter tax? Do I have an office in New York City or do I work from my home in the suburbs of New York City? And it has important implications from an infrastructure standpoint. If I am coming less than 50% of the time, does my office need to dedicate square footage to me or can I hot desk or hotel desk? So very important definition, 1.5% of the U.S. workforce. Over the next 10 years, from 2010 to 2020, pre-pandemic, we saw a 100% increase. Very unusual in the world of labor statistics. Labor statistics usually move very slowly, very methodically, but huge increase driven by the Zooms of the world and the Asanas and Mondays and base camps, project management software, things that were allowing people to be on the same team, even if they weren't in the same office. But if we had spoken pre-pandemic, the world of work would generally say, well, look, remote work is kind of a poll function. It's the employee asking to do it. And it's the employer mostly saying no. So we would think that 3% might grow to 4% over the next 10 years. And the reason for the slow growth, when we dive into the how companies actually engage workers, is security, infrastructure, policies, and procedures, one big bucket. Companies simply didn't want to put those things in place. It's one thing to say, sure, you can work remotely. It's another to make sure you can access all the company's systems if you're outside of the four walls. It's another to make sure every single meeting has a remote option, not, hey, we're going to have this meeting. Is there anybody remote? Should we put a Zoom in? No, no. It is a default, so you're not checking. Because if you're checking, you're obviously going to, things are going to slip through the cracks and people are going to be left out. Those are the policies, procedures, and infrastructure needed. The second is mindset. And we all know the manager that says, look, I know all the studies. All the studies tell me remote workers are more productive. They're happier. They're healthier. They are more engaged. They have higher retention rates. They cost the company less. They cost the worker less. But I think productivity happens when people are together. I think magic happens when people are in the office. Presence equals productivity, however they say it. So that mindset was another big impediment. And in March of 2020, both things had to change. Mindsets 
I don't care what you think. We have to go remote. Infrastructure, you got to put it in place. So at the height of the pandemic, despite what our friend that predicts 50% would say, 40% of the U.S. workforce is working remote. And now we think about what data can we look to look post-pandemic. God willing, soon we'll be in a post-pandemic world. We can look at what employees say. When you look at surveys of what employees want, very few want to be in the office full-time, but very few want to be remote full-time. They want that flexible work arrangement. The, hey, I'm not going to be in next week because I have something I need to take care of with my family. Hey, I'm going to work from someplace else for a couple days. Hey, I'm going to come in four days a week, but then not on Fridays. On Fridays, I'll work from home so I can get a jump on the weekend. Like Whatever that is, that's what most people want. And then when we look at what managers want, more managers now are wanting their employees to work remote. And all of that, when you crunch all the numbers, gets to about 8% of the U.S. workforce will work remote post-pandemic. Now, people say, whoa, 8%, that's not enough. Let's remember, definitions, 8% is just people that are fully remote more than 50% of the time. If we talk about flexible work arrangements, it might be 32 to 33% of the workforce that will have a flexible work arrangement. It's also important to remember that that is out of our natural limit of 42. The U.S. has the highest percentage of its workforce that can work remote in the world. 8% out of the 42%, well, that's almost 20% of the people that can work remotely are going to. That is mind-boggling, but that's how we use history. That's how we use data. That's how we use how companies actually engage and think about their workforces to make thoughtful predictions about where the workforce is going. That is really interesting. I also think on the mindset, it wasn't just the managers. I think a lot of employees believed that they were more productive physically in an office setting. Sometimes you have to see it to believe it. And I think that was a huge shift as well. And many are. And many people want to go to the office because data is data, but humans are a social animal. We want to be in the office. We want to be with our teams. Do we want to be there five days a week, nine to five? No, but we want to be there at least a good chunk of the time. Totally right. And there's a lot of research showing there's a lot of loneliness and other aspects that are coming from this enormous shift. With these points you've made, and I know there'll be others as I ask this, but how does someone look ahead then and think about What matters to them as they're navigating their career and thinking about, I mean, look, the heaviness of today would pull you just to be on right now and maybe near term. But how do we look ahead and how important is it to look ahead and prepare yourself for what might be based on as much data and surety as you can to be ready? There are a few things that come to mind here. First is when we look at all the jobs that are predicted to grow they fall into two basic categories, hard tech or hard human. So the hard tech jobs, the STEM jobs, the analytics jobs, computer programming, robotics, AI, cybersecurity, blockchain, all that stuff, growing leaps and bounds, no question. But the hard human jobs are also predicted to grow. Jobs that require creativity, design, empathy, human interaction, jobs in sales and customer experience and support, jobs in user experience and design, those jobs are all predicted to grow because robots are nowhere near being capable of doing any of those things. But I think the important part, Mary, is that people have an actual data and history and how companies engage workers' conversation. And here's the example I give. Truck drivers. If I were to ask you, there are 3 million truck drivers, light and heavy trucks. 
in the United States today. If I asked you to predict how many truck drivers there will be in the United States in 10 years, what would you say out of our 3 million? A lot more than we think. That is correct. There will be much more than you everybody thinks. I will tell you, when I ask this question at conferences, and obviously the conferences are virtual now, answers come zooming in over the chat. A million, a hundred thousand, none. And you're like, okay. And I get why people come to that conclusion. That is the conclusion that social media and very quick snippets would tell us. Oh, autonomous vehicles are coming, therefore truck drivers are out. No. The data would tell us that autonomous trucks are not road ready yet. We don't know when they'll be road ready. Best case scenario from the people at Revmo and Waymo and a bunch of other places making the trucks are five years. But there's a case to be made, by the way, that they're never road ready. They never actually get it's to a point of safety and comfort that people allow them on the road. I don't believe that case, but we can't dismiss it as a possibility. But let's give them the five years. Let's say in five years, the trucks are road ready. Then you need to make the road itself ready. You need sensoring technologies. You need repair infrastructure. What happens when the truck blows a tire? You can't just pull into the local station. People can be like, what is this thing? You need repair infrastructure. And then more importantly, you need the regulatory infrastructure. What happens when that truck hits something? Who is at fault? What happens if the truck gets hijacked? I mean, there are just countless scenarios that need to be taken into account and laws need to be passed. And that is going to take another 10 years to put in place all that infrastructure and all the regulatory frameworks. And then, and then you have to purchase the trucks. If we look at Knight Swift, the largest trucking company in the United States, they have 18,000 trucks. They spend about $100 million a year replacing trucks. If they were to double that, it would take them 10 years to replace their entire fleet. Now you're out 25 years because no other company can go as quickly as them. They're the largest, they have the most capital. You start painting a scenario where you're 25, 30, maybe even 40 years out, an entire lifetime, career lifetime. So as people say, oh my God, truck drivers are gonna be gone. You're like, well, maybe, but that's not what the data would tell us. That's not what an analysis would tell us. The analysis would tell us that new technologies take a long time to come on stream, take a long time for the capital investment necessary for them to propagate. It takes a long time for the changes to make their way through the entire supply chain. And even when they do, you still have some truck drivers that are there. So the story that should be told of the 3 million truck drivers in the United States is that there's a shortage of truck drivers in the United States. And this is a middle-class job that can be done without a college education that we, quite frankly, should be encouraging people to go to, not having people look at headlines saying, oh, truck driving, I don't want to go into that. No one's going to need them in a couple of years. And that is how we think about the future of work in a specific discipline, is to think about it in that type of pattern and with that framework. How about this whole growth of the gig economy and on-demand labor market? Some of the impacts, obviously, were also accelerated during the past year and change. What do we know about that? And what should we be thinking about that as we look ahead? What everybody should know about the on-demand labor market is that it has been a very large part of the labor market for generations. It is not new. It is growing, but it is growing very slowly. It has taken about 3% market share over the last 10 years. It represents somewhere between 27 and 30% of the labor force. It is more when you take into account people that have at any point worked in the on-demand economy, because I would say that most people at some point spend some of their time getting some freelance income, doing a consulting project, working as a temp. But people working today, about 30%, that is in the United States and in the EU. 
again, slow and steady growth. So it's important to understand that it's not new, but one of the things that we talk about a lot in the book is how all of the tensions, all of the dynamics of that on-demand worker, things like total personal responsibility for their training, their development, their healthcare, their retirement, task-based labor, work being broken down in its component tasks, a data-driven HR where you're being judged on a lot of data on each individual task, and then that data is aggregated into your performance. Algorithms allocating work, where it's not a human saying, oh, we should give this job to Sally versus Stephanie versus Bob. It's an algorithm choosing one of those workers to perform the task. All of those things that the on-demand worker has known about for decades are permeating the full-time workforce. And we are starting to see all workers have to think about personal responsibility, have to think about task-based labor, have to think about data-driven HR, have to think about algorithms allocating work. And so when I said in the book, the rise of on-demand workers, it is not that everyone's going to be an Uber driver. Far from it. The on-demand labor force will continue very slow and steady growth. It is all of the tensions of that Uber driver are going to be something that everybody needs to be thinking about. Two questions on that. That 30% too, is that people who are full-time, that's what they do. Does that include side hustle work as well? It includes moonlighters, yes. Okay. What I'm doing now is part of that. There you go. You are part of that 30%, as am I. I've got some side hustling going on and side income. Everyone should, right? (laughs) Everybody should. And most people over at some point in their career will. And it is a very large part of the on-demand labor force, the moonlighters. But in the on-demand labor force includes temps and contingent labor and consultants and freelancers. It is everybody doing work that is not a W-2 employee of that company. Right. Recently, I was working with some university grads, a group from Rice University and, and others, but they're more interested partly because of the times that we're in, but they're really interested in these kinds of roles. But they do ask a lot of questions about how do they protect themselves. Any thoughts on that? Look, it is one of the challenges. And what is always interesting to me is all of the surveys in the on-demand labor force say 80% of people wouldn't take a full-time job if offered. And people think of that full-time job as the protection. I would argue against that. I would say no company is out there really looking after its workers. Every company is doing what's best for the company and the workers should do what's best for the worker. And that's the way it's been. People harken back to like the 60s or 50s and say, oh, it didn't used to be that way. Incorrect, completely incorrect. The whole notion of a lifetime employment model, it was just that. It's a notion. It did not actually exist for all workers in the United States. For some workers at some companies, sure. But the idea that in the 1960s, every company looked after all of its workers for a lifetime, that's laughably incorrect. We have to compare their need for protection to what has happened through the history of work, which is there's never been any protection. So that's the first statement. Well, There never has been any protection. The second is the protections that are offered through the W-2 are mostly through the social safety net. When you do W-2 income, you have access to unemployment, you have access to workers' comp, and a host of other things that you don't get access to in the on-demand economy. That is an issue and one that needs addressing potentially through regulatory action. And then there is healthcare, where in the United States, we are the only country that does this, the only industrialized country. We have mixed healthcare into employment so much the way no other country, industrialized country, has done. And so as an on-demand worker, you struggle to procure healthcare at a reasonable rate. 
one of the main things that baffles me about politics, I mean, many things about politics baffle me, is why the Republican Party is so anti a market-based mechanism for people to buy insurance in a more efficient manner where companies are competing. I mean, it is the ultimate marketplace for a multi-trillion dollar industry because the marketplaces as they exist now are suboptimal. The marketplace solutions are there. They're there to be created, I would say, for insurance, for unemployment, for a host of other things to enable that on-demand worker to have better access, pay for access. They don't get things for free. And people forget unemployment insurance is an insurance product. When you get your W-2, they take money out of it such that when you stop getting your W-2, they will give you money. It's not a free program. You pay into it. But there's no reason on-demand workers can't have similar types of insurance programs. How about this engagement shift? You mentioned engagement and secure employment is one thing, but will companies' perspectives on how to engage their employees and how important that is be shifting as we look ahead as well? I believe that they will. Companies are starting to think about what we'll call total talent management and looking at all of their workers and looking at moving workers from one classification. As a company, do I really care if somebody's a 1099 or a temp or a W-2? What I care about is, do they have the right skills to produce the outcome that I need? And I want to be able to engage people all over with the right skills at the right level of skill that have the right availability. And I want to make sure I can get my work done for my customers. That's what I care about. And so I think the level of engagement certainly changes. And it doesn't have to be a negative. A lot of people take that to say, oh, well, you know, now workers just become a cog in the wheel. Again, they've always been a cog in the wheel. Let's not pretend that this is something new. It isn't. But companies that I've seen do total talent management try to do it in a way that keeps those workers as close to them as possible, that they are viewed as an employer of choice, especially when you look at different skill sets. There are supply and demand imbalances that favor workers, where workers are able to determine who they want to work for and where they want to work. In those scenarios, and really anywhere in a social media-driven world, companies are very conscious of their brands and very conscious of how they treat all their stakeholders. And so I think there are a lot of positive developments going that way as well. Jeff, let's talk about you as a leader, if we could. As you look back on all of your experience, and you've had such a rich experience, and I know you have a lot ahead, but what has helped you so far to navigate well and have success? And then maybe an example of something that may have gotten in your way. Well, let's start with things that got in my way, certainly earlier in my career. Usually that's not the easy one. (laughs) Yeah. No, for me, it's super easy because it's been pointed out to me a hundred times. Arrogance gets in the way. Thinking that you're always right gets in the way. Insecurity gets in the way. And the insecurity of saying, you know what? I don't know what the answer is and I'm not sure. And so trying to prove you're right to satisfy your insecurity, those were very negative behavior patterns for me. And they manifested themselves all the time. And it wasn't until my board at my last company made me get a coach. And the coach, you know, I remember our first meeting, he sat down, he said, all right, well, what are your goals? And I'd never really laid out my goals, Mary. I just kind of moved from one thing to the next and powered through it and worked 18 hours a day and got things done. And I looked at him, I was like, I I don't know what my goals are. And he looked back and he said, you don't know what goals you have for yourself, for your company over the next quarter, over the next year, over the next five years. I was like, no, grow the company as big as possible and sell it. We began a five-year process 
And I can't emphasize enough to other startup founders, people I work with, if you don't have a coach, you should get a coach. Helping people to understand what is my goal? What am I trying to achieve? And am I being effective as a manager, as a leader, as a professional in achieving that goal? Sometimes you'll have some suboptimal behavior patterns. And you know what? If it's working for you and you're effectively achieving your goals, great. Some people don't want to be great leaders. Some people just want to get to an outcome. Okay, that's fine too. But it's important to be very clear about those things and to action on them. And if they're working for you, wonderful. But if you're not achieving your goals, if you're not being efficient at achieving your goals, then what are some frameworks you can bring in in terms of your own behavior patterns to be more effective? So those are the things that, without question, made me a better professional, made me a better manager, made me a better leader. That's awesome. And I imagine part of that, of course, self-awareness is a big deal, but for you to share so openly and in some ways vulnerably some things that you worked on, you don't always hear that. Was that part of an outcome of that as well? Or because you seem very comfortable sharing very openly your experience? Well, look, once you have achieved a certain level of success, it's easy to look back and then say, hey, here's all the things I messed up. I wish I was strong enough when I was going through them to be vulnerable about them. My first startup, Mary, failed miserably, basically bankrupted me. I got the call from my mom. Do you need to? Don't they? (laughs) It is true. It's not a part of the startup world people talk about, but it is a reality. You know, I got the call from my mom. Do you need to move back home? That's a wonderful call to get on a lot of levels because we should all be so lucky to have that support system. But it doesn't make it any less horrifying (laughs) when you've gone to all these wonderful schools and worked all these wonderful places and then you made a series of terrible decisions and you lost all your money. But you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off. But here's the thing about that failure. I never talked about it until not after I sold my first company after that experience, but until I sold my second. And so it took that amount, took me two successful exits for me to really own up that the first one was a disaster. If there's advice I could give to people, well, the first advice is if you're going to start multiple companies and one of them is going to fail miserably and bankrupt you, have that be the first company. You don't want it to be the last one. That'd be terrible. But that other piece of advice is, look, this stuff is hard and you should know you're not alone. There are some ways you are alone, by the way. You have to pick yourself up. Don't expect someone to put their hand out and pick you up. You pick yourself up. You dust yourself off. But know that you're not the only one picking yourself up and dusting yourself off. And you keep going. How did you do that, though? It sounds easier than (laughs) I'm sure it was. But what got you to just pick yourself right back up? Well, it took time. There was a solid month. I didn't leave my apartment. I was just super depressed. And you know what? It takes friends. It takes support systems to give you that encouragement to pick yourself up. And for me, it was my family, my older brother specifically. And I remember saying to him, you know, if that company just got sold, everything would be different. And he just said, so let's just say it's sold. What would you do differently? I was like, well, I do this. And he goes, great, do that. You are the company sold. He kept saying that you are the company sold as if my behavior patterns can just be that the company got sold. The company didn't get sold, (laughs) but I needed to own the outcome, understood that the company took whatever path it took, and I can still behave the way I wanted to behave and do the things that I wanted to do as if it were sold. I didn't need to sit there and wallow my apartment. And so he kept saying, you are the company sold. That for me was very important as I finally made that motion to just pick myself up and dust myself off and keep going. 
That's brilliant. That's brilliant. On the side, I've read that, well, I think it's on the side, you've produced or helped produce <laughs> Tony award-winning musicals and other shows that have done really well at film festivals and the like. What's that all about? Is that a side hustle, a hobby? Uh, where did that come from? There are a few things. I mean, look, I am in the midst right now. ADP bought my last company, which was amazing. And ADP is the best company in the history of the world. They're one of the largest enterprise software companies. People think about them as payroll, and they are not just a payroll company. They're actually one of the largest enterprise software companies on the planet. It gave me a lot of space to think about things, but I did leave ADP. And so now I'm retired as I think about my next company, whatever that may be. And in that time, I'm writing a screenplay. I think it's super important for people that are creative to have a creative outlet. And I worked on this screenplay during my time at work market. I wrote this book, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations, during my time at work market. Because, Mary, what's important for me in my process is focus on the problem, focus on the problem, focus on the problem, then turn and focus on something entirely different, just nothing to do with anything, and then come back to the problem with a different mindset, a different perspective, just a break. That to me was always important. And so every single day would I write the book? No, not every single day. But every now and again, I'd take a break for a few hours, focus on the book. Every now and again on a weekend, I'd sit down and imagine this world that I have in this screenplay. And these characters, they only exist in my head, but I love them all. That's been an incredibly fun project. And that relates to creative outlets from an investing standpoint. Look, to me, those were just capital allocations. And I appreciate that as an incredibly dorky thing to say. But if you have the capital and can allocate it outside of the stock market, there are other ways to invest that are incredibly rewarding financially. And we made money on all of those investments. But they're also just fun. Could I have put that same amount of dollars into the stock market? Of course I could have. Instead, I put some money into some Broadway productions, into some feature films. Being a part of that process as they're going through it, and i it's not like I'm sitting there being like, I think we should change the words in this song to this. I'm not that. I just got to sit there during rehearsals and go backstage and be there on opening night and go to the Tony Awards. It's just super fun. It's balance too. It's kind of filling you up in maybe more heart and soul than just body and mind. And I, I think that's fantastic. Sometimes I find we think they're entirely different, but they're more related than we think. There's so much you can transfer from one to the other. I think you're right. And I think to go back to that point on perspectives, when I go and spend time with theater people, they're very different than the startup founders and engineers that I'll spend 18 hours a day with. During my time at work market and before it, I was a reserve officer in the NYPD, an auxiliary officer, they're called. And everybody that I got a chance to walk the beat with, regular officers and other auxiliary officers, are very different people with very different perspectives on the world than the people I was 18 hours a day, seven days a week with. Yes, it fulfilled me to go and do volunteer work and to serve my country, my community, my city. But it also fulfilled me from having an entirely different perspective than the same conversations about politics or entertainment or the world, because we tend to get into our rabbit holes and into our echo chambers, and we tend to surround ourselves with people that are very like minds. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I would say there's something wrong with that if that's the only place you're getting any feedback or any thoughts. 
And I would go on patrol with people that had an entirely different political view than I did and were thoughtful and intelligent people that just had a different perspective. It certainly broadens my view of the world, getting that outlet into various different parts of society. Fantastic. Jeff, what's one perspective that you may have on, which we touched on a little bit, of course, why navigating a career today would be different, or as we look ahead, would be different than it used to be? What's one thought or perspective you have? Well, shocking nobody. I'm going to go to data here. And the data would tell us that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you could, from 18 to 24, do your occupational education, whether that's at college, an apprentice program, a vocational school, and then build up the skills necessary to monetize that over the next 30 to 40 years, an entire career. Now, the average skill abates, becomes non-monetizable in four to six years. The more technical it is, four years, the less technical, about six years. And so no matter what industry you're in, if you're a plumber, there are all kinds of new plumbing technologies and ways of getting work and a host of other things, back office things, front office things, marketing things, plumbing technology things. Everything's changing. There is a phrase that a lot of people are starting to say, oh my gosh, that phrase is overused. I would argue this phrase is not nearly used enough. And that is, you need to be a lifelong learner. You need to constantly upskill and reskill. And those are things that are very, very different for the career in this modern context than they have been since we have started this notion of a job a couple hundred years ago. I would add to that, I don't know if you agree that we also used to look to our companies and other environments to do that and provide that. I think today we have to feel really empowered to drive it on our own as well. I would violently agree with that, (laughs) that as we said earlier, right, there's this convergence and that personal responsibility is permeating the full-time workforce. I would argue the companies never really looked after people? Did they spend more training dollars per worker in previous periods? Absolutely. That is a very clear data trend. The amount of training and development dollars going per worker has decreased. So companies aren't spending these dollars anymore. One of the examples I talk about in the book is one of the large technology companies, one that is very long dated going back 40, 50 years. They used to have a university where they would send you for two weeks And you'd go down to, I believe it was Tampa, and you'd spend two weeks learning and networking and doing all these things. That's gone. Now, you do 40 hours of online training on your own time. We went from two weeks company-sponsored to 40 hours online on your own time. That's the evolution of how corporations are handling training, meaning you need to own it. This is one of the things I would say to my team all the time. They'd come in and... I took my lessons from my coach and I applied them to the team and everybody there needed to be very clear quarter by quarter of what they were going to accomplish from a professional standpoint with their work standpoint. But I made everybody put in a professional development. What do you want to accomplish? And a personal development. And it would be great if their manager helped them to achieve those things, push them along. And people would come in, they would say, oh, well, my manager didn't do this. Well, your manager doesn't own your professional development. You own your professional development. It'd be nice if your manager would encourage it and support you on it. I obviously pushed my managers to do that. But if they didn't, they didn't. Nobody owns it. You own it. Fantastic. One last question. I would love to hear, we'd all love to hear, what's a piece of career advice? You've shared a lot of them, but what's something you haven't told us that is something that may have stayed with you throughout your career or any piece of career advice that you'd share with us? 
one thing that we really haven't mentioned that has been so impactful for me, and far be it for me to plug another book other than my own, is a book called Mindset. I believe it's Carolyn Dweck. And it talks about this difference between do you view things through a lens as a test of your capabilities? And if something goes wrong, therefore you're not good. If something goes right, therefore you're good. That is a fixed mindset. And that is a suboptimal way to go through the world. And then we have a growth mindset where everything is viewed as an opportunity to learn and to grow. And if you screw something up, that's okay. You learn from it. If you do something well, hey, that's good. You apply the lessons of the past. And for someone like me, who was so fixed mindset, everything that happened, Mary, was either this tremendous validation of how awesome I was and how I was so brilliant and doing amazing, or this tremendous indictment that I was a complete and total fraud and this whole thing was a facade and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And that is a terrible way to go through life. It's a terrible way to go through a career. So be very mindful of trying to get to that growth mindset because it will serve you incredibly well in not only your professional life, but I would argue in life in general. Spot on. And we will put that book and yours, all the details in the show notes. That's fantastic. I'm a huge fan of mindset. Jeff, we have covered so much and I really want to thank you for all the richness, for your insights, for the perspective and the frameworks that you shared, but also so much from your personal leadership journey and your openness there. We all learn from each other that way. And that was brilliant. Thank you for being with us and thank you a ton. Thank you so much for drawing all that out. I did not anticipate going down those roads when we started, so I am super excited that we did. Really appreciate it. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Music